History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge? Find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. Hello, my name is Ryan Weir and I am here in the HHE studio with the Kung Fu master to my Kung Pao chicken. It's Mr. Peter Goddard. You are a Kung Pao chicken, my friend. I'm super tasty, that's why. And I'm super hungry, so what a team we make. Now, Peter, last week the Derzelator gave you martial arts in the Philippines during the period of the Chinese Civil War, which is 1927 to 1937 and 1946 to 1950, which I have to point out is the longest title we've ever had for an episode. Yeah, it's very complicated, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. But look, Peter, as you know, it is spar of the course to kick off the episode with a breakdown of what's coming chop. (laughs) Ah, you started strong, you wandered quite far from the path of a solid pun. So, Dojo have some fascinating facts for us, or did you strike out? Either way, we're in for a lot of fun, because I know you have a great sensei humour. Oh, thank God. (laughs) Tease people, Pete, tease people. I will tease them. You know, Ryan, we are going east to discover a country made of over 7,000 islands. We're going to brave the traffic of the most densely populated capital in the world and meet a sporting legend. We're going to discover an underground river and a chocolate hill and we're going to travel to a land where fighting arts are fast and furious and where the practitioners evolved their art from a rough and ready street rumble to an international sporting event welcome to the pearl of the orient welcome to the philippines and let's get ready to rumble Peter, I am super excited. I know almost next to nothing about the Philippines, if I'm honest. So uh, why don't you orient me fully on whereabouts it is and what it is, what it looks like, who's there, why they're there, and what the heck is going on? Orient you, I will, because we're going to the Orient, as it was once known, the East. We're going to the Republic of the Philippines, or as they would have it in Filipino, Republica in Filipinas. Oh. Indeed. So your Filipino is better than you thought there. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, side note for everyone, the Philippines is spelt with one L and two P's, which was an error I made repeatedly whilst just looking for things. Uh, it's not good for your Googling. It's wrong. One L, two P's, everybody. It's an archipelagic country. Does that mean lots of islands? It does indeed. It's an archipelago from the Greek meaning loads of islands. Uh, <laughs> in this case, a load being over 7,000 different islands in the country. So if you start in Australia, you go north to Papua New Guinea, then north again and a little bit west, and there's a long chain of islands. That's your Philippines. Nice. Or you can start in Taiwan and go south. It's up to you. Well, that sounds a lot easier. Why didn't you just say that? (laughs) The flag is quite a nice one. It's horizontal bands of blue and red, but with a white equilateral triangle at the hoist. So it's a bit like a triangle poking in from the left-hand side of the flag. That's very cool. Yeah. And on that triangle, there's a golden yellow sun with eight rays coming out, representing the eight provinces of the country. So the sun with 7,000 rays (laughs) was abandoned was it? They commissioned that, but the embroiderer was like, how about one for the provinces instead? 
<laughs> now, Ryan, you'll notice I said it is a horizontal band of blue and red, but the way up is important. If you fly the flag of the Philippines upside down, that indicates to them that they are in a state of war. Oh, really? Mm, which was pretty embarrassing in 2016 when Facebook celebrated Independence Day for the Philippines <laughs> by flying their flag upside down. So I think technically they may still be at war with Facebook. I don't know. <laughs> so size-wise, Ryan, it's 300,000 square kilometres, 116,000 square miles, which in France terms is a little bit over a half of France. France is 1.8 times bigger than the Philippines. So is that all the water around the islands as well? Is that just all the islands smushed together? Well, I struggled with this a little bit because the figure I saw claimed to include, quote, inland seas, which I guess means the water. But when I saw a map of the Philippines kind of superimposed over a map of France, it kind of looked bigger than France. So I'm not exactly sure what counts as that space in terms of the area of the country certainly it's complicated i think it's fair to say <laughs> the population is less complicated though 110 million souls compared to france's 68 million so you've got a lot of people in the philippines that is a lot of people and now those people you might hear calling themselves pinoy what does that mean pinoy means philippine people oh okay it comes from the pino is the end of filipino And the Y is the the diminutive used in the Tagalog language. Filipino is the official language of the Philippines, but it is a formal form of Tagalog, which is spoken more broadly in the area. Tagalog. Tagalog, yeah. I'm hearing words I've never heard before. It's a very widely spoken language, actually. You'd be surprised how many people you meet who actually speak it. Hmm. But having said that, there are between 130 and 190 different languages spoken around the country, which is perhaps unsurprising when you think about all the different islands and how they must have developed separately. Hmm. Uh, But the official languages are Filipino, English, and it used to be Spanish, but not anymore, which gives you a little hint as to what we might be talking about in the history (laughs) section. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, The national anthem I'm sure you're interested in is Lupang Hinirang, Chosen Land. You're going to sing it for us? Uh, And I think we'll play it, and I'll tell you a little bit about it while it plays. All right. Oh, I like it's a little creep back at the start. It's cheeky, isn't it? Yeah. It's the teddy bear war against the little pixie fairies. Ah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. So this was composed in 1898 by Julian Felipe, and the lyrics were adopted from a Spanish poem, Filipinas, written by Jose Palma in 1899. Uh, Interestingly, it's had English, Spanish and Filipino incarnations in that the language it was in has been English, Spanish and Filipino. I like it, it's fun. It's got a, I think it has a a warmth to it, doesn't it? I like it. It grew on me. They all end the same. Have you noticed that? They do, yeah. (laughs) Ta-da! Trill on the drums and we're done. Yeah. Now, the capital city is Manila. This is one of, if not the most, densely populated city in the world. Oh, really? Uh, perhaps not unrelated, it's famously congested. The traffic is, seems to be in an endless gridlock in Manila. Is Manila a touristy place? I have been to Manila, so in, in that oh. I've been there as a tourist, yes. <laughs> uh, there are tourists who go there. There are plenty of tourist sites. There's lots of history there, but it is a massive city. The Philippines yeah. is quite a distributed country, so there's bits of the, the Philippines that people visit. There's some lovely areas that are famous for beaches. So the Philippines as a whole is definitely a tourist 
destination, I think. I'm, I'm not sure Manila so much is because I think people who go to that part of the world are looking for more the nature side of life than the city. But I absolutely loved Manila, so maybe there are more people like me out there. I don't know. I just figured it was sounded more of a businessy place. Yeah, it is. I, certainly, it's a home of a lot of outsourcing. You get call centres and things in Manila as well. Okay. Now, Manila is not related to the envelope of the same name. You may be shocked to discover. What? Big brown envelope. If you were to slip, if you were to take photographs of somebody and blackmail them, yeah. and you would slip those photographs in an envelope under the door of a hotel room somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I'd put them in a manila envelope. A manila envelope. A little brown envelope, basically. Uh, okay, cool. So manila envelopes are made, they're called that because they're made of manila paper, which was actually invented in the United States in the 1830s. This was invented during a cotton and linen rag shortage. Hmm. So they started using manila rope, which was a rope that was used on ships, as pulp as the base for the paper wow this begs the next question why are manila ropes called manila ropes were well, they made from manila hemp aka abaca which is a plant in the banana family mostly found in the philippines <laughs> <laughs> but ironically manila the city is named after a philippine plant but not the manila hemp plant <laughs> what's going on the city of manila it was originally manilad and it's derived from the nilad plant which was once found growing profusely in the area so it's Almost connected, but actually not. <laughs> That's a good Philippines fact. It's a, it's a sort of fact, not fact, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I like that. Now, it's a tropical maritime climate, so hot, humid, expect vegetation, sweat and rainy seasons. But it's also home to some interesting geographic features, including the world's longest underground river, the Puerto Princesa Subterranean River. Oh. Uh, you can get on boats and you, you row into it. It's essentially a cave system by boat. It's really cool. It's pretty impressive. You can also go and visit the Chocolate Hills. What? <laughs> the Chocolate Hills are these landscape features, which are like large mounds, kind of conical hills that make it look like the landscape's been studded with these like 50 metre high Hershey's Kisses. Huh. Like, these are natural formations, are they? Yeah. These are known as conical cast hills, and they're created by an uplift of coral deposits and erosion that combine to make these emerging little Hershey's Kisses on the landscape. It's quite impressive. How strange. So just like these little dog turds. Well, I guess that was one of the early drafts of marketing's brochure, but then they went, how about the chocolate hills instead? And fortunately, since one out. <laughs> now... <laughs> Now, economically, it's a dynamic emerging economy. It's transitioning from agriculture to services and manufacturing. It's doing pretty good. Good for them. But interestingly, one of its biggest exports is people. Oh. There is the stereotype you may be familiar with of the Filipino maid. Yeah, I've heard of that. They also export lots and lots of health workers, especially nurses. So in the US, for example, and this isn't just, it is a stereotype, obviously, but, you know, there's something behind it. In the US, of the foreign-born nurses, 30% of them were Filipino. <laughs> That's extraordinary. 30% just in America. Yeah. Wow. I've seen a figure of 25% of overseen Filipinos in nursing. In 2016, it was suggested there were 3 million Filipinos abroad. Unofficially, up to 10 million are said to be abroad. 9% of the country's GDP is personal remittances, so money sent by people back home to the family. 9% is an awful lot. That's a lot of your economy. $31 billion in 2021. Wow, that's astonishing. Do you want to have a guess at the most popular sport? Is it a martial art? It is not. Oh, that's a shame, isn't it? Mm, I will tell you, because it's quite surprising to me what it is. It's 
basketball. Oh, r- really? <laughs> okay. Now, uh, there is the stereotype of people from the Eastern nations being not very tall, and yet basketball yeah. is incredibly popular in the Philippines. Now, you'll you'll discover why when we talk about the history, because it was for a while run by the Americans. Well, that makes sense. So it's that or baseball. Exactly, yes. And uh, Japan got the baseball, and I guess Philippines got the basketball. Yeah. Uh, now, of course, the topic is martial arts, so it would be remiss of me not to mention possibly the most famous Filipino of all time, Manny Pacquiao. Oh, right. Yeah, the boxer. The boxer, known as the Pac-Man, considered by a lot of people to be the best (laughs) boxer of all time. Champion at eight different divisions, the only boxer to hold world championships across four different decades. He is generally considered, pound for pound, one of, if not the finest boxer there ever was. Four different decades is an extraordinary feat. Uh, He had an amazing career. And then at the end of that career, he went, I fancy a new challenge. He went into politics. He became a senator in the Philippines until 2022. And at that point, he entered himself ultimately unsuccessfully in the race to become the president of the Philippines. Unsuccessfully, though. He was unsuccessful, but he was a senator for a long time. I'm not sure exactly what he's doing now, but he did not win the race to be the president of the Philippines. And we'll find out a little bit about that later as well. Well, that surprises me because, you know, we do live in a world where celebrity status seems to uh, gain some people political power. Well, it didn't hold him back. I mean, he is a legend in the Philippines, particularly. He's a famous son, really, isn't he? But uh, yeah, it wasn't quite enough to put him over the edge. But as I say, we'll talk about that in a minute. But the final thing I wanted to share with you, Ryan, it's been a while since we've had a food or drink of a nation, hasn't it? Yes. I would like you to have one of these. Ooh. Now, I thought, oh, I'm going to go exotic and I'm going (laughs) to somehow get this unobtainable Philippine beer. Do you want to tell the audience what it is we've got here? Yeah, it's a standard from the local off-license San Miguel beer. Exactly. I brought them from the supermarket earlier today (laughs) (laughs) because it turns out this is not a Spanish beer at all, which I had assumed it was. It's Spanish. It is not Spanish. San Miguel originated in the Philippines. It actually was established in the area of Manila, called San Miguel in 1890 so this isn't recent they invented or created the San Miguel brewery and only was only introduced into Spain in 1946 everything has been thrown up in the air what's real and what's not I know so I on the one hand I was a bit disappointed that I wasn't going to anything more exotic but on the plus side I just had to nip round the corner to buy some of these yeah so I suggest a toast to martial arts in the Philippines here's to you Ryan cheers <laughs> cheers Hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. Do you want to try one of my desserts? Your desserts? Yeah, I'm starting a martial arts-inspired bakery. Oh, really? That's pretty niche. Yeah, I'm going to call it the Dojo. I think people are going to really get a kick out of it. Aha, <laughs> I see what you did there. Did what? People getting a kick out of it? That's funny. What? Oh, you know what? Never mind. Look, what desserts have you got in this business of yours, and how are they martial arts-inspired anyway? First up, I've got Taekwondo nuts. Oh, that's good. Then there's the Crepoera. Nice. And uh, how about a nice slice of karate cake? Carrot cake? Right, that just about works. And of course there's Marshall Tarts. You know, that's actually pretty good, Ron. I am impressed. There's only one problem though, Pete. Nobody wants to buy anything. Why is that? Well, because people are saying my martial arts cakes can't win a fight. What? Who says that? What are you talking about? Well, all the eggs get beaten. Oh. Half the products have been battered. I see. And that's before they've even been boxed. Okay, very good. Right, have you finished? Yes. Ryan, you're an idiot. But, can I have one of those? Well, you have to fight me for it. I do not want to do that. All right. That was a top-notch sketch, Peter. (laughs) Wasn't it, though? (laughs) 
(laughs) (laughs) That probably took us hours. Very likely. (laughs) Okay, Peter. Well, you have suitably oriented me on the place. I know a tremendous amount about the place. I have a lovely can of delicious San Miguel lager. I wish to know the history of the place because that bit is the bit that is missing. All right. 50,000 years ago, Ryan, it is early, early man. That's good. I like an early, early man. Catches the worm. You recall a few episodes ago we were talking about Denisovans and other not Neanderthal early man types? Yeah. Well, we found another one. Oh, where? Another one in the Philippines. Homo luzonensis. Homo luzonensis. Well, he's also known as Ubag, which is perhaps easier to remember. This is an extinct species of archaic human from the late Pleistocene. Okay, what do they look like? Uh, It's hard to say because the sum total of the remains we found of the Ubag people is some teeth and finger bones. (laughs) (laughs) So they had teeth? And fingers. We can be confident of that and little else. They like chicken wings and drumsticks. I wouldn't be surprised if they constructed an entire creature out of these remains. But yes, it's another of these early, early men in the Philippines. But more traditionally, we're going to leap forward to about 3000 BC, where the seafaring Austronesians were migrating south from Taiwan and they arrived in the Philippines and went, this is nice, let's live here. Yeah, for sure. Uh, They established various kingdoms. They fought with each other. It's 7,000 islands, so I'm not going to give you 7,000 histories. Plus, most of this is lost to our written records, obviously. But over the centuries, there was Islamic influence, Indian influence, Chinese cultures arrived, there was trading in the area. So a bunch of kingdoms came and went and came and went as they tend to do. Uh, We'll fast forward to 1532, which sees the first Europeans arrive. Now, uh, who do you think the first arrived, Ryan? Portuguese. (laughs) It it is. It is and it isn't, though. Ferdinand Magellan was a Portuguese man, but he was on a Spanish-sponsored expedition. So I don't know if you count that as the Spanish or the Portuguese getting there first. Portuguese. Okay, well, in any event, it was a very memorable memorable visit for Ferdinand Magellan because about a month after he arrived he got into a skirmish with a Philippine chief somebody called Lapu Lapu and his forces got into a fight with these guys his forces were defeated and Magellan was killed what (laughs) that's going to have been a horrific way to go as well isn't it we're talking clubs and arrows spears and knives he was done with wasn't a great end stabby end yeah you know he didn't have to land did he so after this the Spanish had another go at colonising and they were a bit more convincing Miguel Lopez de Legazpi set out from Mexico in 1565 and established the first permanent settlement in a place called Cebu. And there's a city there now called Cebu City. And we'll actually hear a bit more about Cebu City later on. They came from Mexico. I that seems like a long way to go because you've got to go across the Atlantic. You've got to go round Africa. You've got to go past India. <laughs> you've got to go all the way round. Because you have to go left to right on the map, don't you? You can't What's go the map? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And that's why Ryan's first exploration was a horrible failure. <laughs> I spend a lot on plane tickets. I don't doubt <laughs> Uh, now, the arrival of the Spanish brings us the first instance where you have something you could reasonably call the Philippines, as opposed to a bunch of islands that were a bunch of different kingdoms. Spanish colonial rule brought in Christianity, Spanish laws, uh, also introduced the oldest modern university in Asia. So then, weirdly enough, due to things that were really mostly going on in Cuba and the Caribbean, there was the Spanish-American War, and that ended up with the Americans coming out on top. And as a result of this, in December 1898, the Philippines were passed to the control of the United States, along with Puerto Rico and Guam. It was kind of a weird side effect of a problem somewhere else in the world, which we've seen happen before, haven't we, where Mm. you just get handed over as a part of a package. Uh, The first Philippine Republic was established January 21st, 1899, but the United States didn't recognise them, so they began the Philippine-American War instead. Oh, okay. How did that go? 
not brilliantly for the Philippines, but it was interrupted by the Empire of Japan invading in World War II. They were in a fighty mood during that time, weren't they? They were in a fighty mood. They just wanted to be free. But the Japanese included events such as the Bataan Death March and the Manila Massacre. The names alone giving you a rough idea of how roughly they were treated. But over a million Filipinos were estimated to have died by the end of the war. So they, uh, they had a hard time during that. Now, on July 4th, 1946, the country's independence was recognised by the United States with the Treaty of Manila. Finally, yay, Manila was free and independent. That's good. Okay, then things happened. In 1965, though, the next big thing is Ferdinand Marcos becomes president. You may have heard of him. Who's that? Not ringing any bells? Okay, well, he started out by improving the economy, actually, at the beginning. Gets him elected again in 1969. But when the cry goes out, Mr. Marcos, your time is up, uh, he said, well, never mind the Constitution. I'm going to declare martial law and uh, I'll stay, thanks, if it's all the same to you. With a dictator situation, can you have a little guess at what happens next? Persecution, prosecution, death, destruction. Okay, well, I've got the... You're very close. It's near as damn it, you're on the nail, really, because I've got the classic authoritarian triplets, repression, Censorship and corruption. Yep, and yes. Yeah, there are accusations that he embezzles billions of dollars of public funds along with his wife, Imelda Marcos, who you may have heard of. Yeah, her of the shoes. Famously managed to create a collection of shoes estimated to be around... 3,000 pairs. How do I know some things and not other things? It baffles me. You're a, you're a funny old fish. I don't know what's going on in that <laughs> bunce of yours, but yes. Imelda Marcos could wear a different pair of shoes every day for eight years if she so wanted. Now, perhaps, relatedly, the 1980s saw a period of economic collapse for the country. That'll, that'll happen. I wonder how that happened. Now, in 1983, there was an exiled leader of the opposition and he flew back to the Philippines. And when he got off the plane at Manila Airport, he was immediately shot dead. He was assassinated by the army, literally on the airport tarmac. He got off the plane and was killed immediately. His name was Benigno Aquino Jr. What was he expecting? Well, I think he was expecting a bit of a rough welcome, but I don't think he was quite expecting that. So this was just Mm. too much for the the nation, really. And it was a trigger for widespread civil disobedience. This was a step too far. So in 1986, Marcos called a snap presidential election to try and deal with this. And he faced an opposition led by Corazon or Cori Aquino, the widow of the assassinated man. Oh. It will not shock you, perhaps, to learn that Marcos was once again proclaimed the winner. But this wasn't (laughs) the end, actually. There were 30 computer technicians with Comelec, the Commission on Elections, and they walked out. They said, this election was fraudulent and we're going to walk out in protest. These are people who are part of the computer technicians who are maintaining the systems for the elections, right? That seems brave. It was very brave, but it was also, again, this domino effect. It starts mass protests, boycotts, and it leads to what's known as the People Power Revolution. And this has included elements of the armed forces who were told, go and attack these protesters. And they went, "Ah, I think we're on their side, actually. Oh, really? So it all sort of started turning at this point. Exactly. They wouldn't fight their their fellow Filipinos. It was enough was enough moment. Eventually, Marcos and his family fled the country, leaving the opposition in charge. Did she have to take all of her shoes? Or is that how we know, because she left them behind? I think she left the shoes behind. I think one of the legacy elements of Imelda Marcos and the Marxists in general was the exposure of all this enormous fabulous wealth. Although they were always a glamorous couple. They kind of traded on their Jackie Onassis style, very uh, opulent, even openly. They weren't pretending to be poor and actually being rich. Um, but so Marcos and his family flee the country, the opposition take charge, but it's a bit of a struggle to bring back stability. It's always difficult after a revolution because then it's who's in charge. Subsequent governments are accused of corruption. There's an ongoing conflict with Moro separatists. You're going to laugh at this, but you shouldn't. The Moro Islamic Liberation Front or MILF, the rather unfortunate acronym MILF. <laughs> <laughs> My mother's a MILF. <laughs> 
<laughs> She's a mother I love forever. Oh my That's what Lord. it means, right? Yes, that is what it means. <laughs> yeah. Love you, mum. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, economically, it was doing quite well. It becomes one of the fastest growing economies in Asia, but the people are still getting sick of corruption. So 2016 sees a landslide victory for the presidential election for a strongman character on a big anti-corruption platform. He was a man called President Rodrigo Duterte. So President Rodrigo Duterte's famous hardliner is going to crack down on crime, in particular on drugs. Uh, to give you a rough flavour of the approach he had, he said, quote, I will order the police to find those people, meaning anyone involved in drugs, and kill them. The funeral parlours will be packed. Uh, he said this. This is a quote. He said that. <laughs> this is how he gets his nickname, Duterte Harry. <laughs> <laughs> after dirty harry the, yes, the movie indeed okay yeah no and i get that um i can see how that might appeal to a certain section of society yeah i mean to be honest with you duterte is a fascinating character because on the one hand he was a terrible man who didn't really lean on judicial process he was just like go kill them i don't care i'm gonna come and kill you it was horrible things really in a way but he was also incredibly popular he was a mayor of a t area of of the Philippines before he became the president and he really clamped down and kind of cleaned up the town and that was what he was known for. So it's a very interesting dichotomy as to how you feel about Duterte. Well, as I understand it, the problem is with that was that his death squads were susceptible to corruption and would just take out people and say that they'd been dealing drugs or been involved in crime. Yeah, and there's always risks without due process of, oh, sorry, I thought you were doing drugs so I shot you in the head without thinking about it or having a trial. Uh, it's too late now, right? So, I mean, it is by no means unproblematic but on the flip side he was really popular hmm. now he fortunately did not take the marcos route in 2022 there was another election and duterte opted not to stand huh. uh, instead the election was held and in an inspiring result to tell you that anybody could become president ryan the current president is ferdinand bongbong marcos wait what not the, Mar the son of marcos genuinely the son of ferdinand marcos wow. but it's okay because he is ably supported by his vice president sarah duterte <laughs> are you joking or not i'm not joking is that serious <laughs> that is very serious so however humble your origins ryan as long as one of your father or mother were president you can be president too <laughs> nepo babies so i mean the philippines is in an in interesting position at the moment economically it's got a lot of potential i think it's uh, we have yet to see what the mark this was literally 2022 so what marcos and duterte will get up to let's hope there's no reason why they can't do a good job so i'm going to cross my fingers because i love the philippines i really loved it when i went there i would happily go back so let's say raise a glass to the philippines i'm going to raise a can to the philippines with this spanish can of san miguel <laughs> <laughs> cheers cheers oi you what you got there who, who me officer yeah you what you got in your hands um Sandwich? Oh, a likely story. I have a suspicion that sandwich is harbouring drugs. What? No, officer, it's a sandwich. You would say that if it was a sandwich harbouring drugs. I think I should probably just shoot you to be on the safe side. What? No, no, it's just a sandwich, I promise. Ham and cheese, look. Don't you point your drugs at me, sir. Are you threatening me? No, 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 I'm just... Put the drugs down slowly onto the plate or I will be forced to shoot you. No, no, wait, here, here, here. I'm, pu I'm, pu I'm putting it down. All right, now back up, back up. I'm going to investigate these drugs. Right, I have 
concluded my investigation, sir, and there are no drugs detected in this delicious sandwich. Oh, thank God. Right, who's next? You, suspected drug dealer with a milkshake. If that's chocolate milk, then I have reason to believe you're hiding drugs in that straw. Get over here or I'm going to shoot you. Corruption. <laughs> Corruption. <laughs> Corruption. <laughs> All right, Petey. So, why don't you give me a little breakdown on the history of 1927 to 1937 and 1946 to 1950, which I believe, according to the Dursalator, is the Chinese Civil War? Yeah, it's a time period that just trips off the tongue, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's odd that we get—it's the first one that we've had that's like a double, a double date. Exactly so. It's really odd. It's broken into two phases. In fact, Wikipedia says the war is generally divided into two phases and an interlude. Sounds <laughs> it's a bit like something you write in the programme for the war. Do order your drinks in advance for the interlude. <laughs> so this war runs from 27 to 37, 46 to 50, as you say. Uh, the notable event in the middle is obviously the Second World War. What's happened here is there are two sides in the Chinese Civil War, the Kuomintang-led government of the Republic of China and the Chinese Communist Party. So they were battling over who was going to be in charge of China. Yep. But then Japan came along and said, we think Japan should be in charge of China. World War II begins whilst the other two are still fighting amongst themselves. And they set up a puppet government whilst Japan is in control of China as a whole. And during that period, the Kuomintang and the communists kind of go, well, we've got an, another external enemy to fight here. So we'll perhaps try not to fight with each other so much. Okay. It should be noted they did not sit around the fire singing Kumbaya. They did bicker and fight amongst themselves in that period. So it wasn't a let's team up and drive the Japanese out. They separately fought the Japanese, but they did have a more important external threat, I think it's fair to say. So obviously it became clear in the end that the Japanese were going to lose and get kicked out of China. So it was back to fighting one another again. Interlude over, time to fight once more. The combat lasted until the Kuomintang were driven out of the mainland. They took refuge in Taiwan. And if you want to hear more about that, listen to our Taiwan episode. That was in 1949. And that's the end of our time period. Okay. But you did mention, Ryan, martial arts. And I, I, I do want to talk a bit about them because the Collins Dictionary definition, I thought I'd better look it up just in case I got it wrong. Yeah. Says any of the forms of self-defense or combat originating in East Asia that utilize physical skill and coordination without weapons as karate, aikido, judo or kung fu often practiced as sport. So it is an Asian thing then? You can't have like a Norwegian martial art? I deliberately included this because I massively disagree with that definition. Martial arts are way broader than that. And I just thought it was interesting that they pinned down a couple of different things that I think are very, very reductionist. Not necessarily East Asian. I don't think anyone would agree all martial arts are East Asian. Nor do I think anyone would agree all martial arts are without weapons. So I actually introduced that definition because I massively disagree with it. If you look to places outside of East Asia, Capoeira, in Brazil, Dambe in West Africa, fencing in Europe. These are all martial arts. Boxing, wrestling are martial arts. Yeah. I do not agree that it's uh, East Asian. We will be talking about East Asian martial arts, but I don't agree with that part of the definition. And likewise, I believe fencing is definitely considered a martial art. So basically, Colin's dictionary is wrong, is what I'm saying. I bet Norway does have a uh, martial art. Oh yeah, I'm sure they're slapping each other with herring on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> Kung herring. <laughs> 
but let's break the word down into its parts. Martial is an adjective meaning related to fighting or war. And art has a lot of definitions, but one of them I found is a skill at doing a specific thing, typically acquired through practice. So my definition that I'm going to use for this episode is the skill of fighting. And it says war, but I don't think battlefield tactics and pike formations constitutes martial arts. I think that's strategy and war. So I'm going to add the element of the individual. So for me, it's the art or set of skills related to fighting between individuals, often codified into a formal set of moves or practices. I mean, I want to agree with you, but you've not included waxing cars and painting fences, which, as we know, falls very distinctly into the martial art category. Well, I agree with you, and I would say that's what I mean by a formal set of moves or practices. Yeah, all right, fine. (laughs) (laughs) So there you have it, Ryan. That's what martial arts is. That's where we're talking about. So uh, I think we're ready to move on to the main business of the episode. After this. Gary, we're looking at a thrilling final for the tournament today. That's right, JR. Newcomer Donnie Lee in the contest of his career, facing off against world champion Liu Kang. And what a battle it's going to be. Liu Kang, a couple of years older, has been dominant since winning the title last year. Don't count Donnie Lee out yet, Jerry. He wants that championship belt, and he's been training hard. That's right, and you can feel the excitement from the crowd as they enter the ring and await the opening bell. We're underway. The heavyweights clash as Liu Kang goes straight for the watercolors. Not wasting any time setting up his easel. He's using broad brushstrokes across the canvas. Donnie Lee there soaking up the pressure. He's sitting at his potter's wheel, calmly shaping, molding that clay with his fingers. Liu Kang there, beautiful couple of dabs, each showing extraordinary focus on the technique. What is that? Is that flowers? Yeah, it's early in the round, Jerry, but it does look like flowers. Extraordinary move. Donnie Lee there, he needs to do something with his clay. Uh, Liu Kang is taking all the momentum at this point. That's right, he's really going to need to pull off a slender spout on that teapot that's taking shape if he's going to make any impact on this match. Yes, both men clearly laying it all out on the line. Absolutely incredible focus and technique. And it looks like Liu Kang has a nearly complete artwork. Yes, there it is, Jerry. Now Donnie Lee is frantically trying to finish up the spout of his creation, but Liu Kang, he has his work off the easel. And boom! A strong roundhouse swing of the canvas, and Donnie Lee is out cold on the tournament floor. And that's it, the referee is calling it. There's madness in the ring, and there he is, Liu Kang, holding up his painting, a real titan of the sport. Well, that is a well-deserved win, Jerry, but a heartbreak for young Donnie Lee, whose teapot is smashed on the floor like his dreams. Well, that was another great fight here at the Mixed Martial Arts and Crafts World Tournament. Up next, Scrabble to the death. Right, Pete, what's our first story? Okay, we're now into martial arts in the Philippines, 1927 to 50 minus the war, which is how I'm now putting it. <laughs> it's that is easier to say. <laughs> so it won't surprise you, Ryan, that like pretty much everywhere, as we just discussed, Philippines has its homegrown martial art. Oh, okay. What is it? Well, it has a few of them, but the thing it's most famous for is Arnis, Eskrima and Kali, all different names for what can be... It's an umbrella term, they say. So there's different schools, different varieties, but broadly, they're talking about quite similar things. Okay. The name Kali comes from the southern part of the Philippines, where the locals speak uh, Cebuano, where the car is kamot, meaning hand, and li is lihok, movement, movement of the hand. 
Esgrima originates from the central Philippines, derives from a Spanish term. Esgrima means fencing. Oh, okay. And arnis is from apparently the old Spanish for armour. Right. Uh, Okay. So for the purposes of the show, rather than call it three different things, I'm going to call it Esgrima throughout because that's the name I first heard and what I've always known it as. But yeah, bear in mind, it's an umbrella term. It covers various styles and various things. So you're very likely to meet someone who says, uh, that's not arnis, that's... Carly, yeah, we'll just call them all Eskrima for the purposes of the episode. Okie doke. So what are the characteristics of the art of Eskrima? Typically, it's associated as a form of fighting with sticks. Now, a lot of martial arts will tend to start you off with open hand techniques like punching and grappling. And, you know, once you get good, they might start teaching you how to swing a sword. But Eskrima, they're like, no, they figure if the other guy's going to have a stick, you better have a stick from the get go. So (laughs) you rock up, you get given your stick day one. Don't turn up to a stick fight with not a stick. Without a stick, exactly. It's that famous saying. (laughs) In fact, it's said that the Eskrima student should be able to pick up any nearby object and turn it into a deadly weapon. Any nearby object? Any nearby, not a piano or something. That seems broad. (laughs) Limited. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Also, some people say the stick is basically a stand-in for a bladed weapon, a sword or a machete. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Well, it is worth noting that this is quite a controversial point of view. I saw an interview with a grandmaster who was very insistent that stick and a blade, they're different skills, they're different techniques, and you wouldn't learn to swing a stick as if it were a sword. If you've got a stick, you should swing it as a stick so there are different points of view on this i mean it makes sense they're different weights and things aren't they so exactly but one of the things that backs up his idea that that actually sticks are sticks and blades are blades is that a lot of escrimer practitioners also practice with blades they use knives a lot in particular the bolo knife which is a very characteristic knife of the philippines what does it look like uh it's a little bit like a machete it's got that curved machete kind of look to it you'd want to chop through jungles with it for sure i think the u.s army actually took it and had issued their own form of a bolo knife uh, based on the Philippines design. Very good. So where did Eskrima come from? There's unsurprisingly some debate as to whether it was around before the Spanish or it was created after the arrival of the sword-wielding Europeans. It's said that around 1762, the Spanish Governor-General of the Philippines, Simón de Anda y Salazar, ordered the banning of the practice of Filipino martial arts. So I think it's pretty likely that it happened before the Spanish and they were practicing their martial arts. But yeah, it's said that the Spanish then banned Eskrima in particular. Supposedly then the art was carried on in secret under the guise of dancing which you you may be familiar with the Brazilian martial art of capoeira which Mm -hmm. has a similar story where the slaves were learning to fight but they were like oh this is just a dance don't worry about it (laughs) that's kind of cool but you can see why uh, an invading force might want to ban a knife-based fighting style this is an interesting and quite controversial point as well because it's also said that there was a prohibition on blades which is why Eskrima became a stick fighting form Mm. but there is a book called Cebuano Eskrima Beyond the Myth which actually suggests that actually that's not true because for one thing having hundreds of thousands indeed of separate islands would make a ban of any kind basically unenforceable you can't just check every island isn't practicing these things they also said a ban wouldn't make sense because when the british invaded manila on september the 23rd 1762 the spanish needed support from filipino native fighters and if you're going to have support from fighters you're probably not going to go but don't bring a weapon because that would be bad (laughs) everyone bring sticks exactly so this uh 
uh, this book basically suggests actually maybe it wasn't suppressed in quite that way. But there's another version of what happened. This is from the 1957 book A Body of Knowledge in the Sport of Arnis, which suggested that actually the problem wasn't that the Spanish were afraid of the fighters, but that the men were spending so much time practicing their martial arts, they just weren't tending the fields and being economically active. And so that's why the art was suppressed, because it wasn't so much, oh no, don't be so powerful and good at fighting. It was get back to work, you. <laughs> oh, wow. As ever, it's probably all of the above, right? The truth is we don't know for sure. And one of the problems is martial arts in particular tend to lend themselves to mythologizing the stories of feats of great grandmasters. And, mm. you know, it is a thing that uh, is really prone to embellishment, I think it's fair to say. It is, isn't it? It's kind of tied to myth and legend, isn't it? Exactly. There's, there's always stories of a grandmaster who could leap 100 feet in the air and flick a flea and it would travel 100 miles an hour and through the skull of his opponent and all that kind of thing. Catch a fly between some chopsticks. Exactly. So, you know, nowadays you see a massive variety of schools of Eskrima even today. So I think it's pretty plausible to think it basically just quietly developed through the centuries with people travelling around and learning each other's art and passing it from father to son. And in particular, the Philippines, this was a working man's martial art. This was a rough and ready business. It was not taught in mountain retreats and temples to monks with nothing else to do but train all day long. It was taught in the fields and the streets of the Philippine Islands. Oftentimes when you see people training actually in old footage, it, there's just guys in t-shirts and jeans. There's no sort of important pyjama style gi or any outfit particularly. It's just guys off the street learning to fight when they get back on the street. <laughs> So for me, it's pretty obvious that learning to fight predates the Spanish. It's pretty standard that a martial art absorbs new techniques when it sees them. So when the Spanish arrived and they had certain techniques, they were going to be absorbed into Eskrima, I think. So I don't think it needs a fancy origin story about being dancing or anything like that. We just need to know what it is today. And that is an extremely fast and furious fighting style that is increasingly seen in popular culture today. So you have seen this art, Ryan, without knowing it. I believe you've seen the film The Bourne Identity from 2002. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You may remember a scene where Matt Damon, as Jason Bourne, disarms a knife-wielding assailant with a pen. Yes. He is using Eskrima in that scene. Just for that one particular thing? No, I think they, they incorporate a lot of his techniques, include a lot of Eskrima. It's not just Eskrima, but uh, in the 2021 film Dune, though, mm -hmm. according to the director Denis Villeneuve, the characters do use Eskrima, actually use Eskrima, because personal force fields in the film, you may be aware, render guns useless, so it becomes a knife-fighting culture again. And so they use Eskrima because that is an effective knife-fighting form. Not many sticks in the Dune world. Not many trees. Not many sticks and uh, plenty of knives. But if you want something a little more grounded and a little less fictional, it's said that both the US military and the Russian Spetsnaz Special Forces all learn Eskrima techniques as part of their self-defence training. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's widely considered pretty effective as a, as a weapon-based technique. And that, Ryan, is the overview of what is Eskrima, where did it come from, that's the history. And I'll tell you what's going on in our time period specifically after this. You all right, mate? I broke my screamer stick and I uh, just need to get a new one. No problem. What are you looking for? Beginner, intermediate or pro? Ooh, beginner, I suppose. Yeah, well, look, sorry, I can't really help you with that. Why? Well, because I'm a figment of your imagination. What? Yeah, you're unconscious. You're lying on the floor of the dojo and you're dreaming this whole conversation. Oh, what happened? Extremer training. You took a stick to the noggin and it broke the stick. I broke my screamer stick and I uh, just need to get a new one. No problem. What are you looking for? Beginner, intermediate or pro? Ooh, beginner, I suppose. Right. I've been using the Pole Pro 73. Right, well, that explains a lot. Oh, really? Yeah, see, so you want to be looking at a truly reliable make? Wackatron or Stickmasters? Something like that's going to be your best bet. Okay. Yeah, well, look, sorry, I can't really help you with that. 
Why? Well, because I'm a figment of your imagination. What? Yeah, you're unconscious. You're lying on the floor of the dojo and you're dreaming this whole conversation. Oh, what happened? Extremer training. You took a stick to the noggin and it broke the stick. I broke my screamer stick and I just need to get a new one. Well, in that case, you can't go too far wrong with a Wackatron 62X. Oh, that is nice. Yeah, she's a beauty, isn't she? Yeah, look. Her blood resistant up to 60 metres. Right, well, I guess I'll take one of those then. Yeah, well, look, sorry, I can't really help you with that. Why? Well, because well, I'm a figment fig of your imagination. imagination. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're unconscious. unconscious. You're lying, you're lying on, the on the floor of the dojo. dojo. You're dreaming dream dream this whole conversation. Oh, what happened? Extreme training. training. You took a stick to the noggin and broke the stick. I broke my screamer stick and I just need to get a new one. All right, Pete, hit me up with the time period and some facts about martial arts in the Philippines. In the Philippines, in the time period. So in the early days, you had people in their towns and villages and they were more or less passing the traditions and techniques from father to son or around the community. It was a kind of a local affair. And for some reason, and I cannot find the reason why this might be, the art becomes particularly popular in and around Cebu City. This was the first place that the Spanish landed. But for some reason, Cebu City becomes a hotbed of Eskrima excitement. Okay. So today, Cebu City is nearly a million people. It's a big place. Uh, now, in 1920, we're nudging into our time period. Two brothers, Florentino and Eulogio Cagnetti, they learned a screamer from their father and they studied under various masters. They found themselves in Cebu City, where all the, everyone seemed to. Uh, and they teamed up with a family called the Saavedra family. Lorenzo Ensong Saavedra and his nephews, Teodoro and Federico. OK, that's nice. So these guys start the Labangong Fencing Club. This is the first Eskrima, formal Eskrima organisation in the Philippines. Good for them. Entrepreneurial people. Exactly. Exactly. Now, for reasons that I also have been not able to actually divine, the club was dissolved in either 1930 or 1931. Oh, that's not very long. Not very long, but the ball had started rolling. Eskrima was becoming a bit more formalised, right? So now there is a documentary that I based a lot of this section on called Eskrima Doors. Now, one of the masters interviewed suggested that uh, the schools of Eskrima in the area kind of had a tendency to fight each other, basically. And they were, it was very much a my kung fu is the best attitude to life. They all had their own styles and specialties. They talk about short range and longer range, open hand or sticks or the espada y daga, which is sword and dagger technique. So there was a bunch of different people with different skills and specialisms. So in part to prevent further fighting and in part to actually learn from each other, in 1932, bingo, our time period, the Cañetes and the Cervejas, they get together with a total of 12 Escrima masters and they form the Doce Pare. What's that? Doce Pares is Spanish for 12 pairs, and they've named themselves after the 12 peers or the 12 paladins who were the finest swordsmen of the Emperor Charlemagne of France in about 700 AD. Oh, okay. So these are a little bit like the Knights of the Round Table in France, led by a knight named Roland, you may have heard of. So this is a bit like calling yourselves the the Round Table, I think. Hmm. Or the Expendables. Well, yes. (laughs) That's like the modern Round Table, isn't it? The Expendables. I I guess so. But the Expendables were old and the knights were in their prime. So a little bit different. True. And there's also a little bit of a play on words. And I couldn't figure out if this was a mistake or deliberate because Dose Pares is 12 pairs, but... The reference is 12 peers, 12 like nobles, if you like, the knights. But as it happened, at the start, there were 24 members, so it was 12 pairs. So I don't know if it was a deliberate joke or a convenient uh, accident, but mm. nevertheless, Dose Pares becomes this club of the grandmasters of Cebu intended to sort of develop Eskrima and learn from each other. And also just hang out, have a drink, a bit of a chat. Yeah, I'm sure. I wouldn't doubt they did that, and we'll explain why later. Play some pool. 
probably did but you know i wouldn't necessarily want to play pool with a screamer master who was really good at hitting people with sticks <laughs> exactly they've got a long stick in their hand yeah that's not a great uh, start if someone says i'll fight you in the pool room no i'm all right thanks <laughs> So the club was located in San Nicolas Town, which is a rough working class area, which kind of sets the tone for the art. It's, this is a wrong side that attracts martial art. This isn't young men shaving their heads and aesthetically training in temples. This is street fighting, essentially. Cool. Now, the first president of Dose Paras was Eulogio Cagnete. A side note, he was the first president in 1932. He held the presidency until 1988 when he died. I picture in my mind some white bearded, bald headed man sitting atop a mountain with his legs crossed. Well, this is not what these guys are like. They're just rough and ready guys from the alley around the back, really. The other founders of the Labangong Fencing Club, the Canetes and the Saavedras, they were also part of the Dose Pares. And there was also a member named Venancio Bacon, spelt Bacon, which it took me a long time to not call him Venancio Bacon. (laughs) (laughs) Crispy. Venancio Bacon was not exactly every inch of warrior you would expect. He was five foot two. (laughs) Size matters not, Pete. Well, indeed, he was very, very skilled at the corto linear short line technique, which is a close range style, as you may imagine. (laughs) (laughs) And range is, I think, quite an important concept in this game. There's long range style and short range style and uh, not never the twain may meet, but uh, they have different characteristics. But between all these grandmasters, Dose Pades becomes known as the premier Escrima group or style of its day. Now, unfortunately, it falls apart a bit when our uh, time period falls apart as well, when Japan invades the Philippines. The army gets overrun and actually many of the Dose Perez fighters head for the hills and they become guerrilla fighters in the war. Okay, that sounds like a good guerrilla army to have. I mean, certainly you want these guys on your side. Unfortunately, Teodoro Saavedra, who was one of the greatest fighters they had and one of the original Labangdong fencing club guys, he joined the guerrillas, but he was captured by the Japanese in 1943 and he was executed for fighting the Japanese. I know. Well, uh, they one in the end after 1945 the Japanese were expelled and Dose Perez the group came back together again and for a while all was well for a while for a while however Venancio Bacon becomes disaffected with Dose Perez uh, it was at that time dominated by a guy called Kiriakao Kakoi Kanyete so Bacon takes a few of the other guys and says like meet me in the backyard of this watch shop in Balintawak Street which is a small side street in Cebu City and there with a few of the other guys they form a breakaway organisation Balintawak Self-Defence Club Club. Cool. Okay, it's good. We're setting up a rivalry. Right. Now, through the 1950s and the 60s, it's a period which basically is considered kind of the golden age of Escrima, but it was also the bloody age of Escrima because basically Escrima, Dose Pares and Balintawak would just call each other out and test their skills. Venencio Bacon and Kakoi Cagnete particularly had no love lost between them. So fighters would actually start to have no holds barred fights that they would just organise between each other. Okay, wow. So these were known as Juego Todo, I think translate as total game or known as death match right so they were fighting to the death no they would not fight to the death but they would fight with no helmet or protection they would often sign injury waivers before they had a fight because they knew quite how dangerous this was and the winner would gain reputation one of the masters in the, the documentary i saw described being an escrimador as being like a gunfighter so you would win a fight you'd gain reputation then as you gained reputation other fighters would come and seek you out and you'd have to fight again yeah I I don't know how I feel about that. Well, another master interview said, you're not an escrimador if you're not willing to fight, which you know, it's it's a fighting art. I told you this is a rough and ready street fighting kind of game. 
And what kind of style is it? Because there are some martial arts that are more grips and tricks. Oh, no, this and... is this is this is stick fighting. So, in particular, from what I can make out, the the duels that they would have were stick fighting duels. So, a couple of accounts result in people being cracked on the head and you know injured. So, a lot of injuries. It's not a and then you beat their head in with a brick at the end of it. It's a you fight until you've won. But winning was often you know not. Uh, it wasn't just a grapple and a pin. It was a clocked around the head or broken bones and uh, basically clumped with a stick which is never going to be particularly safe is it no not at all yeah and uh one of the masters admits basically that Eskrima was for workers and rough people and basically a little bit of the criminal element as well well it makes sense if you're in the criminal element you're going to want to have a skill to defend yourself exactly and it, this really stands at odds with when you think of martial arts you're exactly where your mind went the pure i'm under a waterfall these are guys in the streets whacking each other with sticks basically Pasil district was one area popular with Esquimadors, and that's a pier and a fish port. So to give you a rough idea of the kind of places we're talking about. Fewer waterfalls and temples, more fish being gutted, basically. Uh, sometimes the fights were not prearranged. They would just ambush each other. That doesn't feel like a fight, though, if you're ambushing someone. No, not really. But if you are Venancio Bacon, one of the finest fighters of the Balintawak school, uh, who was walking home one night, he was ambushed by an assailant. Uh, it wouldn't have helped him if he'd had a waiver because Bacon not only came out of the fight of the winner, he actually killed his attacker. Oh, my goodness. It's game on, isn't it? Even in the rougher parts of Cebu City, you are going to experience the consequences of killing someone. And Bacon was actually sent to prison for killing the man where he was until 1971. I bet he was a badass in prison, though. Well, you can only imagine. I also read, and I'm not sure how true this is because it kind of keys into an urban myth, that actually Bacon was particularly harshly sentenced because he had the skills that he had. And the view was that you were so skilled, actually, you didn't need to kill him, but you did. And therefore, it's it's close to the whole you register your hands as lethal weapons uh, urban myth. So I'm not totally convinced that's absolutely the case. But that is certainly what's claimed. And it's certainly one of the rules, isn't it? If you were to join a martial arts school now, certainly in the West, one of the first rules is is that you don't take it outside the dojo. Yeah, and also try not to kill anyone is another of the rules. They're rarely laid out explicitly, but perhaps it should have been in Bacon's case. Mm. But Bacon's school is continued. His colleagues and students carry on with the Balintawak school. And uh, you know, it's a still a school of, of Eskrima to this day. He gets out of prison. He doesn't teach again after prison, but he get, he is involved in the Balintawak movement, if you like. But now we're getting into the 1970s and Eskrima has a problem uh, and it's a problem you may have picked up on already because whilst other martial arts are becoming sort of culturally popular and sports, nobody really wants to take up Eskrima as a sport because it's a tough game, dangerous. Few people are keen to sign waivers saying, yeah, I might get my head knocked off by a stick. So, you know, it's not the same as a kick around the park or a bit of a judo grapple, is it? So they think we have to have a safer form of doing this art. So basically in 1976, a group of people formed a committee in Sebu city of course to draft some rules for a sporting version of a screamer so these guys designed from scratch protective equipment helmets and gloves and rules for fighting in a sporting way and they introduced a screamer as a sport and this grew and grew until march 1979 the first philippine national invitational arnie's tournament took place this made me laugh. The tournament was really popular at the beginnings for what might be considered the wrong reasons. One of the masters recalls, quote, the Colosseum was always full because people thought they were out to kill each other. <laughs> well, yeah. 
So I think the early days they drew the blood sport crowd, but gradually it became a bit more of a mainstream event. Mm. But it grows and grows. In 1988, there was a first championship held in the US. And in 1998, Eskrima developed a governing body, the World Eskrima Kali Arnis. Obviously, they couldn't agree on the name. Federation or WECAF, as it is known. In 2009, Eskrima Kali Arnis, whatever you want to call it, reached probably its climax, I guess, because the Philippines Republic Act 9850 passed and with it, Eskrima was declared the national martial art and sport of the Philippines. So now you remember I said, what's the favourite sport of the Philippines? And you said, well, you got it wrong, but it was basketball. Yeah. The national sport, and you originally started with martial arts, the national sport is Eskrima, a martial art. So you were correct had I asked the question of national sport. You were you were very close. I didn't want to spoil the rest of the episode, but you did very well. But that is the story of Eskrima. Now, I strayed a little bit out of my time period, but I didn't want to leave you unfinished. I wanted to let you know that it became a sport. It's flourishing now. A lot of people are doing it. And uh, I expect, Ryan, next time you see me, I will hit you with a stick. I kind of want to see it. I want to see some footage of them fighting in the 1930s in the streets. So there's uh, the footage I've seen is was not of actual fights because I don't think people would tend to take their fights into the uh, public arena like that. But I've seen training. It is a fast and furious business. There's different styles. There's one stick style, long stick, short stick, which is the espada and dagger approach. There's also unarmed elements to it. You don't have to have a stick or a knife. You can. There's plenty of uh, unarmed techniques as well but yeah it's zippy it really is really fast lots of locks and people trying to hit each other with sticks it's it's a really fun watch is it a male oriented sport i saw interviews with male and female competitors at the recent championships so there are certainly both involved i don't think it particularly lends itself to one gender or other actually weirdly because it's got that stick element you know being massive doesn't necessarily help you because you can hit someone with a stick if you're small as well as if you're big right (laughs) yeah yeah i mean i haven't seen any statistics but it wouldn't surprise me at all if it particularly appealed to smaller and female people all right so i'm going to give you a stick to fight with it's either going to be like a really thick stick but short or a really long but thin stick which one you picking i'm taking the short thick stick i think yeah i've i've seen enough that if once the guy gets inside your stick length you're in a lot of trubs i want to keep them nearby i think it sounds painful to be hit with one is what i'm hearing yeah i think it would be for for absolute sure I'm fascinated by this and I cannot wait to see what it looks like. Yeah, I look forward to putting up some clips of something. We'll have, I'm sure there's something out there that we can put on our social media. It really looks like, like I say, speed is the thing that really comes across because it's like... Yeah. sticks at each other there's no no one's no one's taking it easy on each other as far as i can make out i love it all right pd well well done congratulations another one down hurrah grandmaster i stand before you humbly and with an open heart oh that's nice what can i do for you i have voyaged far to learn from the greatest of grandmasters I wish to learn the secret of all the martial arts. That sounds fabulous. I have studied the way of the crane in the mountains of China. Right. The road of empty hand combat from the island of Okinawa. Oh, that sounds cool. And the secrets of tiger-style kung fu in the temples of Shaolin. Oh, well done. I have punched bags of sand whilst holding box stunts under a waterfall. Oh, I I thought you'd finished. I have plucked flies from the air with chopsticks, and I have done battle balanced on a single upright log. 
handy for those log-based fights, I suppose. And now I have journeyed to Cebu City to learn the noble art of Eskrima. Ah, well, you've come to the right place. I am your humble student master. Right, well, the thing is, I don't really have any vacancies. But I have been preparing for this moment for years! All right, all right, I'll give you the short version. You take this stick... Yes. ...and you whack the other guy with it. And? And that's it. Just whack the other guy with the stick. They fall over, you win. Ah, so you channel the essence of your chi to imbue the weapon with power for the strike. Nope, you just hit him with the stick. You locate his chakras and strike with precision at their spiritual nodes. Nope, stick, skull, whack, fight over. That's it! Oh, that's ridiculous! This is the stupidest thing I've ever heard! Wait, 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 wait. let me give you a short demonstration. Oh! Ow! Oh my god! Ow! Bloody hell, that hurt! First lesson is free. Oh! Oh! I wasn't ready! Oh! Grandmaster, my ass! Oh! Alright people, there you go. Another episode down and the eyes of the audience swivel in their sockets towards their ears, which are (laughs) tuned towards me. Because it is my episode next, Peter. Yes, we should probably wheel out the Dursalator. I'm going to turn it on. Alright, are you ready for your place? I am indeed. Okay, here we go. And your place is... The Kamchatka Peninsula. The wait, the what? The Kamchatka Peninsula. Oh, okay. Have have you been? (laughs) 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 Ah, it was a frequent haunt of my youth. Ah, good, good, good. Uh, No, I've never even heard of the Kamchatka Peninsula, so... Well, I'm going to learn a great deal, aren't I? I think so. Uh, Are you ready for your time period, Ryan? (laughs) I guess so. It is the early modern period, Ryan. The early modern period. The early modern period is 1450 to 1750. 1450 to 1750. That's a good long period of time. 300 years. Potentially very useful, given that we don't know anything about the Kamchatka Peninsula. Yeah. Okay, are you ready for your topic? I am indeed. Your topic is... Faith. Wow. Okay, faith. That's good, I think. I think that that gives me scope. I think topic and time period seem to have helped you out a little bit there. Okay, so faith in the Kamchatka Peninsula during 1450 to 1750. Okay. All right. Oh, well, I mean, I'm on it. Let's see what <laughs> see what comes out of this. Oh, oh dear. Okay, well, look, there you go. Thank you all for joining us. That was the show for this week. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch about any of the things that Pete has talked about on this show, or just to say hello, you can reach out to us through our website at hhepodcast.com or by email at Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. That's right. We'd love to hear from you. And you never know, you might end up featured a name on the future show. That's right. And if you're on Mastodon, Instagram, Facebook, or X, you can find us at hhepodcast. Yeah, do subscribe to those. You'll get an alert when we post extra content. We'll try and find some gifts or something of some Eskrima or some pictures with facts we didn't use, photos from the show, other things. Me hitting Pete with a stick. Something not that. But we will be back again soon with... The Verdict. But until then, a huge thank you to you, Peter. Thanks to you, Ryan. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is... You've been listening to...
history happened everywhere. Hey Ryan. Oh, hey Pete. Have you finished with your training? Not yet, Sensei. I waxed the car though, and I painted the fences. Now I'm just washing the dishes. Well, keep it up or you'll never become a black belt. Remember, the warrior must be like dishwater, flowing unimpeded across the plates and mugs of the field of conflict. Well, I think I'm nearly done here anyway, so what's the next lesson, Sensei? Well, there's vacuuming that needs doing, and the dusting, and if you could get a load of laundry going, that would be great. Yes, Master. Good stuff. Keep this up and you'll be a first dan at Jitsu before you know it. Excellent. Then I can beat you up. What? What for? Well, once I'm done mastering all these techniques, I'm coming to get you, and the student will become the master. Oh, right. Uh, but the thing is, a uh, master can always learn more, right? So, in a way, we're both still students, right? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, maybe I'll do the dusting and no need for anyone to get beaten up. Least of all me. If you say so, master. I do. Now, how about you wash and I drive? Yes, I see.